This is Larry Weissin, and you're listening to Outdoor Adventures with Jason. Welcome to Outdoor Adventures with Jason. Each week, I bring the world of hunting, fishing, and conservation to you. From the great hunting and fishing opportunities found in the Americas to the dream safaris located on the dark continent beyond. I'll introduce you to those who are already out in the field living every outdoor enthusiast's dream, as well as outfitters and gear manufacturers that can make those dreams your reality. Killin' Sticks Arrows are for the serious hunter, a company that understands the needs of the outdoorsman and provides five different styles of carbon fiber arrows, ranging from hunting to tournament arrows. If you want premium carbon fiber arrows, go to Killin' Sticks, K-I-L-L-N-S-T-I-X.com to review their carbon arrows. For listeners of the Outdoor Adventures with Jason show, use promo code OUTDOORS to get 10% off your first order. Killin' Sticks, where the blood trail begins. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Outdoor Adventures with Jason. This is going to be a really fun episode because I've got a gentleman on that is just a wealth of knowledge of the public lands here in the USA and uh, uh, Canada as well. And I've got Lan Tawney who runs the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Association. And Land, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Jason. Thanks for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. I want to start off by reading the mission statement. I might refer to BHA as we because I'm a member there. And this, I think, is an important group that if you're into hunting and fishing at all, this is the group you need to belong to. And the mission statement of uh, BHA is Backcountry Hunters and Anglers seeks to ensure North America's outdoor heritage of hunting and fishing in a natural setting through education and work on behalf of wild public lands and waters. And, you know, a little bit before I hit record on this, I was talking with Land, and I said, well, I'm down here in Texas where there's not much in the way of public lands. I can go to Montana, Wyoming, Michigan, and those public lands belong to me. They're mine to use and mine to take care of. And that's what Land's group does. So at this point, Land, I'm going to shut up and let you kind of talk about BHA and what we're facing. Yeah, Jason, I would say that, you know, I think you're exactly right that not only you, but all Americans, you know, every single American owns 640 million acres. Think about that. That's like, you know, that's, you, you could be a billionaire and not even come close to that. So that's what we all we all share. And I think we all live like kings um, and kings on that land and water. And so it's been this you know great legacy that was gifted to us. You know, mostly I think people understand that, you know, Theodore Roosevelt was there. Um, to help set these lands aside and kind of start this uh, public land estate uh, idea in place. But really, you know, there's there's been hundreds of other people that we don't know the name of that have been the stewards, you know, up till now. And I think, you know, BHA, our, our mission statement, is a little bit of a mouthful, but I'll tell you that one of the ways I like to talk about it is you know, making sure you have access to your public lands and water, and then the fish and wildlife habitat once you get there. Because um, so we, we could have access to a parking lot. We wouldn't want to hunt or fish there, but you know, making sure you have quality fish and wildlife habitat once you get there. And, and so really, you know, BHA, we were formed around a, a campfire in 2004. People looked at all the different organizations that were out there, and nobody was really strictly focused on public lands and waters and really in an advocacy kind of education way. And so that's what we do. And, and we do that from all the way from a local level, uh, you know, to a regional slash state level, all the way out to Washington, D.C. And again, that mantra, as long as it falls under getting access to 
our public lands and waters and then and making sure we have good fish and wildlife habitat once we get there and, and so that's a you know a pretty while public lands is a is a narrow focus i guess within all the things you could be focusing on as an organization there's a lot to do within that space and and I think that, you know, the one that I think hopefully most people know about, but if you don't, um, it's time to learn about it, is probably the biggest threat uh, to our hunting and fishing traditions is really this idea of the sale and or transfer of our public lands. And, you know, these 640 million acres that we talked about, you know, if if we start to sell those lands, uh, those opportunities go away right away. And, you know, besides the opportunity that I cherish and, you know, I've grown up with and, and want to pass it on to my kids. Um, it's also the $887 billion economy that goes along with outdoor recreation of which, you know, hunting and fishing is a major, major piece of, and it's like the clean air and clean water that those lands provide all Americans. And so there's a lot at stake right now. And, um, I'd say that's kind of like the number one threat and then you go down from there. But, you know, for us, uh, we're growing like a weed right now, and it's partly because we're addressing these issues and, and really um, doing that aesthetically. Yeah, it's amazing. When I look at the map on BHA's website, which is back uh, backcountryhunters.org, where there was just a few chapters just a year ago, the map, there's so much green on it now. It's amazing, and including Canada. Yeah, we're pretty lucky. You know, we've got, we cover 35 states now and two Canadian provinces. And we've had British Columbia for a while, and then Alberta just came on this last year. And we've got chapters in the works in the Carolinas right now, and also kind of in the, right in the heart of the Midwest. But, you know, covering 35 states, we've got a pretty good showing already. And I think that, you know, we've got members in all 50 states and all Canadian provinces. And so, you know, people are chomping at the bit and we're just trying to, you know, keep this horse on the tracks. People kind of took the public lands for granted and just they were there and we could use them and some used them heavily, yep. some didn't. Uh, but 621, H, HB 621 and 622, which came out, what, December, January time frame? They were in the new Congress, so they came out in uh, January, February there. Yeah, so that really put a spotlight on potential issues of what could happen with our public lands and uh, really helped, I think, to propel some of the growth. It's long overdue. This I, I can't say enough positive things about what goes on with the group. Yeah, let's talk about 621 in particular. I think that you know Congressman Chaffetz, who's from Utah, uh, put this bill forward. It would sell up to 3 million acres of public lands in the West. Um, kind of a wholesale, um, you know, just flat out sale on them. And, you know, that's something that, that I think that the last time we introduced that bill was two years ago, and there wasn't as much awareness as there is now. And so when he introduced that bill, I think he introduced it on a Wednesday, that Thursday morning, uh, we did a, a Facebook Live event, um, and we try to utilize the tools that we have in front of us, and that's one of them. And we had about a half a million people uh, tune into that Facebook Live, and then from wow. there like social media just kind of went nuts. And I will tell you that, you know, folks like Joe Rogan, who has never, ever used his social media platform for advocacy, picked this up, you know, Stephen Ranella, Randy Newberg. I mean, it was being picked up by a ton of people. And, and what all those people did is they used the hashtag keep it public, which was a hashtag that we, uh, created like three years ago at a, at a sportsman's rally and um, started using the hashtag keep it public up on, you know, Mr. Chaffetz's uh, Instagram account. And he just got an onslaught, thousands and thousands of comments. And so a week later, you know, he came out of, uh, he, he came out of his shell after being bombarded. <laughs> 
and uh and you know came up on his instagram account and you know had a picture of himself dressed in camel shout out to you know hunters um was holding a dog which i'm not sure if that dog hunts or not um definitely was holding the dog and then uh he used the you know he said hey I'm, i heard the people and i'm pulling my support for this bill and then he used the hashtag keep it public and and so i think like to me that was this great show of power and potential power that we have as sportsmen you know the the squeaky wheel still gets the the grease in this country and the, you know we may not have billions of dollars like some of the folks that are you know behind this effort to sell and transfer public lands but we do have the people and and when the people step up uh you know politicians should listen because that's who votes for them and so i think that ha- definitely happened in this case and you know i think we avoided some tragedy and and i think at the same time like we're able to to really um, give a, a working example to others who think this is a good idea that you know that sportsmen and women and others are out there waiting and watching and don't touch our public lands and so um you know i think it was a good good showing in many different ways and I wish that that was the end of it, but, you know, there's so much money at stake, whether to exploit these lands or for the people to have their own private honey holes, that you know, I don't think this, this, these threats ever go away. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's up to people to stay vigilant and then uh, be proactive on things. That is exactly true. And that's where I want to jump over to BHA's website here for a moment, because what you've done on this website is really boil it down and give the person that goes in there and reads it starting off points to go do research you don't want them to be dumb and not understand i I use that term loosely just take one viewpoint and and do nothing with it but you give them the spot to say hey what's going on here what's going on there and move forward with it to stay active to stay informed yeah you know i think that you know i appreciate the shout out about the website i think it's a work in progress all the time but we're trying to keep people up to date you know through uh, different projects that we're working on, you know, one of which we've talked a lot about today is the sale of public lands. And, you know, on that on that website, we have a report that we did a couple of years ago, and it's called Our Public Lands Not for Sale. And it's, you can go on there and you can learn about kind of the history and how we got our public lands and then, you know, what's kind of happening now. And, you know, it's a, it's a great resource to look at. But there's other you know, stuff there, too. We just did a stream access report, which, by the way, you guys in Texas have an awesome, awesome stream access law um, that I think allows a lot of people to get out there that you know, wouldn't be able to without that law. But we just put out this report called Stream Access Now, really the first ever kind of report that details you know, access laws in each and every state. And so while Texas is awesome, you know, in Wyoming, you put your anchor in the water in Wyoming and you're trespassing or, you know, God forbid you get out and wade, you're trespassing. And so, um, really, you know, a way to educate people and then also call them to action. And so our website does that in spades. And, um, I think that, you know, this world we're living in where we have information at our fingertips, uh, we hope that uh, people come to to BHA's website and at least learn a, a perspective where we're coming from. One of the spots that I head to quite often on the website is the campfire. And that just yeah. has a real great recap going back quite a ways of what's going on. The local Texas chapter of BHA that I use or I belong with, they do a lot of the hike to hunt challenges. So yeah. there, there's always something going on. And if you don't have a chapter in your state, get together with BHA, contact them, and they can put you most likely, I'm thinking, in touch with people that belong there about and are looking to start a chapter. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so we've got Ty Stubblefield, who is one of our chapter coordinators and kind of really in charge of 
kind of uh, creating new chapters. And so, you know, he's somebody to get a hold of right away. And uh, email is really easy. It's ty, T-Y, at backcountryhunters.org. But then we have, you know, chapter coordinators. And down in Texas, you know, Jason Amaro, who's our guy in the Southwest, um, he, he's out of New Mexico, but helps with the Texas chapter. I know that you guys just had a, uh, a pint night uh, or a storytelling night, I guess, at Yeti's flagship store there in Austin with uh, Jim Shockey, which is crazy. Yeah, that <laughs> was pretty about. cool. Uh, I, yeah, did you get to go to it? I couldn't attend. I, uh, I I damaged my left leg a little bit, and so I'm not able to oh, really no. stand very well right now. And uh, okay. so, but I watched it on Facebook, and we have a member down here named Jason Norris who was kind enough yeah. to. Uh, Jason went out and got me a uh, Yeti hat autographed by Jim Shockey. So. It was oh, sweet. A pretty sweet event uh, to watch live, yeah. and Yeti's a big sponsor of all this stuff. Yeah, you know, Ben O'Brien, who uh, works with Yeti, is on our national board, and, you know, Yeti has been, I think, you know, a, a great, you know, corporate partner uh, since we started for, first started working with them, and, um, you know, I think we're going to do more and more with them, and they've got a, a great, you know, bully pulpit to be able to talk to people and spread the message of these public lands and waters and why they're important. Um, and I think, you know, they and all of our, our corporate partners have something at stake too. You know, that $887 billion that I talked about earlier, like the cornerstone of that is our public lands. And so, you know, without that, you know, we don't have what we have. And, and I think that, um, you know, more and more people are starting to understand that both in the corporate world and as individuals. And so as they realize that, you know, the support for BHA definitely rises. Yeah. And you guys, it's great. You've started your own podcast to yeah, disseminate the yeah. information, which is fantastic. Yeah. Al Herring, uh, who's the host is the kick in the pants. And I think, um, you know, we've had some great guests on there so far. I listened to one, uh, Last night that had uh, Anthony Lakata on there, who, you know, is the editor for both Field and Stream and Outdoor Life, or I can't remember how, like, he's higher up now in that, in that whole uh, scheme of things. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great venue. And as you know, doing your own, I think we were getting into a world of, uh, of sound bites and, and, and memes and podcasts allow you to actually have a conversation. Sure. And, you know, that, that harkens back to those times around a fire when, you know, stories are told and information is passed. I think, you know, as far as all the mediums that are out there, I think podcasts are the one that are most, you know, are most nearing um, or replicating that conversation around the fire. So I appreciate what you're doing on your side of things as well, man. Oh, well, thank you. You know, as we look at these chapters, there's the Canadian chapters, including the one in uh, British Columbia, and mm-hmm. they just lost the ability to hunt grizzly bears now while that doesn't affect public land access it is a species lost and as best i can tell from everything i read and looked at it was a complete emotional law nothing based on science whatsoever yeah i think i think you can still hunt them up there but you just can't take like the skull or the hideout which is absolutely ridiculous to me you know it's like this idea that you know trophy hunting and well if you can't take the you know the hide and the skull out or you know let's say it bleeds into other species and you can't take the antlers or the horns out like that those animal you know animals for some reason become less valuable and we want to hunt them less and i think one i think the idea of trophy hunting like every single hunt that i go on is a trophy 
uh, hunt. You know, it's that opportunity to be out there on public lands and chase these wild critters around. You know, when people come back and they put them up on their wall, it's a reminder of that hunt. And are they trophies? Absolutely. And does that mean that you know, every one of them is gigantic animal no and it's more about remembering that experience and honoring that animal and so and what they did up there i think again you can still hunt grizzlies but you just can't take out the skull or the hide and that to me is you know it's something that's been used you know in cultures dating back you know to the beginning of time and to take that out and like you say and like an emotional kind of knee-jerk reaction because people are trying thinking that's the way that we're gonna you know stop hunting you know i think it's a, it's a danger and, and something we need to pay attention to it's unfortunate, but if the animal has no value, then there's no money, not just for protection of the animal, but for research to keep keep it going and keep the population healthy. And you know sure. as well as anybody else, you can't just let them run amok. So- yeah, I mean, I think that that piece, right? I think, you know, if you look at, like, one, I always like to look at history, right? You know, to kind of, like, help me think about things in modern times. And you look at, like, the market killing that was going on. Um, around the turn of the century, the turn of the you know twentieth century, so early nineteen hundreds, and you know people were killing you know birds to put feathers in women's hats, and they were and they were killing animals to feed people in New York City, and all of a sudden the hunters got together and they said, you know what, these animals mean something to me and to us as Americans. Let's start to protect them, and that's when they started putting the first game laws into place. You know, which was really late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. And that was because, you know, they wanted to, you know, keep them around, obviously, to hunt and to eat. But it was more about, I think, that experience, you know, and having kind of all the the parts um, of those ecosystems. And, and so, you know, that's what we look at today. And I think in this context of this conversation is that there's a constituency out there and hunters who love uh, being on the landscape and have a deep appreciation for their quarry. But also, you know, the other animals like the, you know, the great horned owls or the affiliated woodpeckers or, you know, any kind of other animal that just kind of enhances your experience out there. And if we're not out there chasing them around, then why are they important, you know? And so they lose this constituency. And so I think that's the fear, you know, as partly as, you know, hunting goes away and, and really there's not that base to help protect and, and conserve these animals. Um, and then, as you stated, you know, the <laughs> the way it sits now, hunters and anglers pay for the majority of conservation and, and management in this country. You know, whether that's through excise taxes on, on guns and ammunition or bows or fishing equipment or the licenses we play, you know, starting with the duck stamp that does nothing but, you know, help protect uh, migratory species um, or to our, you know, our state fish and game licenses, like all that stuff goes to the management of these animals. And, and if, if, if that was realized, if some of these anti-hunters realized what they were trying to go after and there was no hunting um, ever again, like we lose that constituency that helps pay for it. And um, so it's, uh, there's many different levels of how, why that stuff up in British Columbia is dangerous, but those are a couple. You have to have these lands and well, somebody might go in to chase mule deer, let's say as an example, the money they pay, the license they pay, there's far more species that are protected and given a habitat than just that mule deer. And so it's it's just a vital to get in there and protect everything because it's just a huge ecosystem. Oh, most definitely. I mean, you mentioned mule deer, like uh, up near Montana, there's a bird called the Clark's Nutcracker. And they share basically the exact same ecosystem. And so it's just another example of like, you know, what these, these animals that, you know, we chase around, like the benefits that are received just by conserving them as a species, but also their habitat. Up in Montana, and it may cross over into multiple states, 
there's a project going on with the Missouri breaks mm-hmm. to enlarge and increase that and create one large park, I guess, for lack of a better term. And do you follow that at all? We do. It's called the American Prairie Reserve right now. And so this is, you know, kind of private entities that are, you know, willing seller, willing buyer kind of uh, situation where they're buying up ranches and that, um, with those ranches, besides like, you know, the property that they buy that also comes with grazing allotments on federally managed land. And so they're pulling that together, I think. And don't quote me on this. I guess I'm on on the air, but I think it's like they've, they've got around 600,000 acres now. Wow. Um, yeah. And they're ultimately looking at, you know, three million, but uh, the 600,000 includes both deeded and leased land. And so they're starting to run bison on there. And my, my buddy, Jim, Jim Posowitz, who for those that don't know, Jim Posowitz, write that name down. He's, uh, he's one of the premier kind of um, hunter ethic writers. He's written four books, uh, one of which is called Beyond Fair Chase that is used uh, in almost every single uh, hunter education class across the country. But, you know, the way he describes it is, is that, you know, we've built this great pyramid, you know, of, of wildlife restoration in this country and, you know, bighorn sheep, antelope, elk, like all these species that we have brought back to the brink. I mean, wild turkeys, there's wild turkeys freaking everywhere now. Is that there's this one species that we haven't done that yet. And that's like the capstone that you want to put on the very top of this pyramid. And that is bison. And, you know, bison, you know, are bigger animals. And, you know, I think that that's why probably that we haven't been able to restore them in, in the way that we wanted to other species. Um, they compete for grass and they, you know, sometimes knock down fences. But this place they're trying to build, build in you know, north central Montana, where life really hasn't changed much um, since uh, Lewis and Clark came through. Like, there couldn't be a better place to do this. And, and I think that, you know, at some point, I would hope in my lifetime, I'm able to hunt, you know, free roaming uh, bison on this place in central Montana and um, really have a hunt. You know, I know they hunt them down in the Henry Mountains down in, uh, in Utah. That's a pretty wild kind of uh, hunt. But man, been able to hunt them up here in Montana, um, out on the plains, just like the Native Americans did and Lewis and Clark did. It would be a pretty special thing. Yeah, it would be a neat. And I read the book American Serengeti uh, by Dan yeah, Flores. Yeah. Great yep. book. And then I happened to hear Dan on uh, Steve Ranella's podcast, which just reinforced right. it. And there are Utah, the North Rim of the Grand Canyon, uh, Mexico. There are a few areas where you can hunt, limited areas where you can hunt free-range bison. But this, right. this American Serengeti, uh, when, when they're done with it, this Missouri Breaks project should be just an awe-inspiring area to keep it as is. So uh, it, it's just one of those projects I didn't know how tightly or how closely you followed that at all. Yeah, we're you know, and I've hunted, I've hunted birds there. Um, I've hunted uh, sharp tails and uh, sage grouse. I actually killed a sage grouse there last uh, September. But it's a, you know, I mean, like I said, it's it's so close to when Lewis and Clark went through there, and how awesome that would be, to be, you know, really able to hunt, you know, these animals kind of like that's always been, you know, done. I think that's it's a, like as Jim Posowitz said, it's like this bold capstone that we need to put on top of this awesome pyramid, this awesome history that we have as hunters and restoring populations in this country. We just got one left. It's neat, and I don't know how much they're looking at. I think with the laws, they're not allowed to look at putting the apex predators back in there. I think if they wander in there, that's fine, but they can't add them. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, I mean, there's, I mean, that's a big can of worms there. I mean, I think <laughs> the you know, grizzly bears are already, you know, coming off the Rocky Mountain front and they're going down these river corridors and getting places, you know, a couple hundred miles away from you know, where they originally were. And so I think grizzly bears would be a pretty quick 
uh, addition and then wolves which is the other apex one that you know everybody cares about um i think they'll be in there if they're not already uh you know well they want them, so yeah they do now if somebody's listening to this they said okay this bha organization sounds like something i need to belong to how do they go out and join yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, there's a couple of things. First, social media provides this opportunity, you know, take even, you know, another look at us. So I think, you know, follow us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Uh, we've also got a YouTube channel. So these are all things that are free and that, you know, give you a better kind of idea of who we are. But really what we need is is we need more people to be in our ranks. And, and not only does that, you know, help us financially, but it also gives us a louder voice. So, you know, becoming a member, it's only $25 a year. And if you think about, you know, going out to dinner with your best friend or your wife, or maybe that's the same thing, um, you know, that's, there's no way you're going to be able to do that for $25. And so, you know, for less than a dinner out, you know, you become a member of BHA. And what that does is it, you know, gets our, gets you our, our uh, magazine that comes out four times a year, uh, you know, connects you to our local chapter. So it connect you, like if you're in Texas, it connects you to the local Texas chapter. If you don't have a chapter, it starts to connect you to those local people and, and their people are doing, you know, pint nights all over this country. Um, and then, you know, it, it also hooks you in. And so when something is going on, um, we can send you an email and try to activate you, you know, whether that's, we talked about that, you know, HR 621 that Mr. Chaffetz was engaged in. That was one of the ways where we engaged our membership was through our email. And so all those things we become a member and we get to be a part of. And, and you know, I think that, you know, I, I encourage anybody that's listening to this that, you know, that cares about public lands and waters to become a member. Um, and that, you know, our job is basically to elevate your voice. And I think so far we're doing that in spades, but the more people that we have, you know, the more opportunities we have to really um, use a megaphone on that voice. And that's how I kind of got brought in as uh, got invited to a pint night here in San Antonio at Busted Sandal Brewery that one of the guys okay. owns. And we started talking and there was a great group of guys and had multiple get togethers now at different locations. And we did one yep. last night, just shooting arrows at targets and, and shooting the breeze. Cool. And, and it's been a great organization, but where I wanted to have you talk about as well on the memberships You've partnered yep. up with some great names, Orvis, Kimber, Jackson Kayaks. Seek Outside. And Seek Outside. So if somebody yep. wants to do a lifetime membership, there's some really cool things that they can get for that lifetime membership. Yeah, I like to say, and thanks for bringing this up, Jason, I like to say that you can almost not afford to become a life member. And it's because the premiums are so awesome. And you know, we just hit 500 life members. So it was a pretty awesome milestone for us to hit. But part of the reason is, is that we, like you said, we have great relationships with corporate partners and you mentioned them, but you know, Orvis and Kimber Firearms, Seek Outside, and then uh, Jackson Kayaks. And so we have three different levels of membership. One's at a thousand or life membership, one's at a thousand, one's at 1500 and one's at 2,500. And really what those different levels dictate is, is, uh, is what kind of premium you get. So just the guns in particular, if you get, you know, if you decide you come in at the thousand dollar level, you get a little 380 micro carry. It's a little gun that you can put in your backpack and don't even know it's there. You know, it's for personal protection probably only. Then you go to the fifteen hundred dollar level, and that's the 45 ACP. So now you're getting into uh, personal protection, I think, against people, but also against animals, i.e., grizzly bear <laughs> potentially. Um, and it's an awesome little gun. And then twenty five hundred dollar level. 
where you look at their mountain ascent. And for those that don't know the mountain ascent, it's the lightest production rifle that's out there. I've got one. You don't even know it's on your shoulder, you know, at the end of the day. It's that light. It's um, a sweet so, rifle. Oh man, it's and I, I you know I shot my bighorn sheep with it last year. I shot my my doe uh, whitetail, and that gun went through some hell with me last year. A car wreck and falling down a couple times, and it still shot tried and true. So I would encourage people to to think about those different options. And then you know it's the same thing with the tents um, from Seek Outside. I guess I would call them teepees. <laughs> different shelters, you know, at a thousand, at a fifteen hundred, and at a twenty five hundred level. Um, you know, those haven't used a teepee, um, we can put a stove in them and they're, you know, absolutely homey and, you know, easy to pack up, easy to set up and they're great. You know, Orvis can't be, you know, there's strong names in the fly fishing community and Orvis is one of the top and we're very lucky to have a good relationship with them. And, and then Jackson kayaks, and that's kind of been a new one for us. And, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, are using kayaks to access these kind of backcountry places. And um, so it made a ton of sense to do something with them. But yeah, those premiums are absolutely outstanding. And like I said, you can't afford not to do it. I mean, I think going back to that mountain ascent, I think that retails for 2000 to 2100 And, you know, you get a life membership plus that gun up for $2,500. So it's a pretty good deal. Yeah, exactly. If you're going to buy the gun, you might as well do it through BHA. Exactly. Exactly. And then work with work with you and and kimber to get that gun shipped out in you know the caliber and uh i don't know if they make it then right or left but you know i'm sure kimber will take care of whoever comes through on that absolutely you can uh you know we basically start the process you get to pick out your uh you pick out your caliber and then you go through a background check at your local ffl and and then you know kimber says it directly there it doesn't come to us first um so you know it doesn't really take that long and um, you know, and then you've got this amazing, amazing firearm that, uh, that not only did you get to go out in the field with, but you also did a good thing for conservation. And if you're in the military or you're a college student, the membership's yeah, only $15. $15. Bucks. Yeah, $15. That's... It's a, and we want to make sure that, you know, that there's not a barrier to get into the organization and also to recognize and support the sacrifices that you know, our military is making. And so, we thought that was appropriate and you know that membership is growing by the day and it's something we really haven't talked about is the college side of things but you know, we've got college clubs now and 10 colleges and with another 10 in the works and so if you're in college or a professor and you're listening to this you know uh, reach out to us and um, we'll help you either get connected with existing folks or think about you know starting a new club in your area see that's that's awesome the growth is great and then on top of that you've got setups for internships if i'm reading this right you do you do you know i that's the way i started jason you know i when i went to work for trcp i did that right out of college and they didn't have a job you know they were real small they didn't have a job opening and so i volunteered for them for six months and then i got a part-time job and then a full-time job and so you know i i love my own personal experience you know like i just love that idea of kind of interning and learning and then We've got, you know, folks here that, that are now full-time employees that start out as interns. And, you know, it's a way to learn more about us, get some experience, and then potentially get a full-time job. And so um, I actually ran into a guy at the grocery store last night who <laughs> was uh, applied for one of our internships and was hopefully going to get, you know, he's putting his own two cents in to get, it, to get that done over the, the finish line. But, you know, for me, I love providing the opportunity and then, two, being around kind of younger folks that uh, that just have a bunch of energy and new ideas. And, um, you know, it's, it's a learning experience on both sides. 
Sure. And, and if anybody's wondering, Land, your background, you've, you grew up in a family that promoted conservation through your father's efforts. Yeah, you know, I, uh, um, my mom and dad, you know, we're both really involved in conservation here in Montana. Um, my dad ended up going to law school later in life um, and becoming kind of the premier conservation easement lawyer here in Montana. So basically, you know, protecting private land in perpetuity. And, you know, with that became the first lawyer for the Elk Foundation from 85 until 95 when he pa- ultimately passed away. But, you know, I was, I was lucky enough to be 10 years old when he started with the Elk Foundation, you know, when they first started up in Troy and watch them grow and watch them move to Missoula. And, you know, I think they're just crushing it as far as protecting, you know, elk habitat. And, um, you know, it's, uh, my, both my parents were engaged in it. And so besides like the, you know, my dad's back hunting and fishing and, you know, and, and, you know, and, and being in a duck blind before I could, you know, long before I could carry a gun. Um, I also kind of by osmosis really, I learned about conservation through my parents and, you know, it's, uh, it's something that I deeply care about and feel very, very lucky to be working in the space that I am uh, each and every day. I know your time is busy, so we'll end uh, sure. on this. I just real quick, I want you to tell the listeners, tell us a little bit about that uh, bighorn sheep hunt. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, um, it was, you know, it's basically a once in a lifetime kind of hunt. Um, though I can apply, um, starting again in seven years. Um, it only took me seven years to draw the permit, but I think that was very lucky. The other guy, there's only two of us uh, in this area, which is just uh, east of Missoula, Rock Creek, which is a famous trout fishing river, but um, also has bighorn sheep in it. We were the only two people that drew the tags uh, in that area, ram tags, and he applied for 31 years. And so um, you know, it's basically a once in a lifetime tag, uh, the weight of the world kind of came down on my shoulders when that happened, you know, partly because of, I think it's, you know, the experience, you know, you're only going to get it once or twice in your life. And also, you know, being the CEO of a large national sportsman's organization, but, you know, I, I got to do that hunt. Uh, I would say I got to be with a lot of people, like my best friend since fourth grade, spent a lot of time with him, spent a lot of time with the editor of my magazine, spent some time, um, you know, with the other guy that had the tag, Kevin Brown, uh, and then really just got to spend a ton of time outside. And I had some ups and downs literally during that hunt, you know, besides the 2,000 feet of elevation that I was doing almost every single day. Um, I got a real bad car wreck after the first week uh, of the hunt, coming back from the hunt, rolled my truck. And, and that was, you know, it was the, both a mentally and kind of physically shaking kind of experience. And I think on the mental side, for sure, the ability to have these public lands and chase that animal around uh, kind of you know, got me right and gave me the solace that I needed um, to kind of go through that like, experience. And you know, another where I was stalking this, um, this group of ewes um, towards the end of the day, and I knew there was going to be a ram with them, and I waited and I waited and waited. Finally, this ram showed up. He was a shooter, and I took my gun off safety and was kind of leaning into this big ponderosa that I had a nice little rest on and had the safety off and doing the one, two, three, and ready to shoot. And as I'm pulling the trigger and blowing my exhale out, uh, the branch breaks that I'm resting on. Oh no. And, uh, yeah, it was horrible. I was like, it was, uh, like I, the gun goes off. I fall down the super steep hill 
but the gun hits the ground, the uh, scope hits me in the jaw. It was like, I, I didn't knock me out, but definitely I was not all there. And I get up and then all the sheep are gone. And you, know, you have no idea if you've, if you've wounded, you know, one of these majestic animals. And so um, you know, I ended up looking for it all that night. I didn't see you know, any blood, any sign. The next day I spent the entire day uh, looking for it. And I knew this area really well and was going to bedding areas, looking at all the beds for blood. And I finally kind of came to peace with myself that I hadn't shot anything. But man, like the ability to work through both the mental kind of state from Iraq and then the mental state from wounding, you know, potentially wounding a ram to actually killing one, like, just the process that all that all was and the space that was public lands provided me that opportunity, I think is something that all uh, hold dear in my heart. And um, I will tell you that um, it's all about eating after that. And the first kind of experience eating that ram was that night after I killed it. And, uh, and we we're eating some of the tenderloin uh, over a fire and uh, a young bull moose walks right through camp. <laughs> oh, wow. and, and so just this wild place. Um, so that was awesome. And then when I was cutting it up, we went over to a friend's house and his name's Eric Hess. And uh, he's like, you ever had carpaccio? I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, Oh, you're going to love it. And so we you take a slice out of the back of like, the, I mean, you can take it off of any meat, but we took it out of the back strap little thin slice and then use a mallet and pound it down and put a little pepper on there and he had a little smoked Himalayan salt that he had made in his smoker and, and then we put a little uh, parmesan cheese and arugula and then just wrapped that baby up and ate it and i will tell you jason that might be the best piece of meat i've ever had in my entire life it sounds great yeah it was uh it was good and i was all expecting it you know raw meat like to not to be great and you know maybe get a stomach ache but man it, it was delicious and i would suggest uh Anybody doing that, you know, with their next kill, it was, uh, it was, it was absolutely delicious. And so, you know, that, that hunt, um, while it was, you know, it, it was up and down and, um, ultimately I was able to kill one. Um, man, there's so many things I remember from that hunt and, you know, trophy naps that I would have on the side of the mountain in the sun where I'd wake up slobbering. I mean, that's, that's the kind of stuff, I guess, that, you know, while there was the end goal of killing a ram, all that stuff that built up to it was pretty darn awesome. It's all part of the experience. It's all part of the, exactly both what you put into it, but also what's taken out of it. And totally. I think people get this misperception that somebody just drives up on a four wheeler, sees a ram sitting on the side, shoots it, drags it down, and puts it head on the wall. And yep. the actual and I know I'm preaching to the choir, but the actual kill is really such a small part of the overall experience that you remember that all for you'll you'll remember that ram hunt for the rest of your life not only for the car accident and the the misfire and and the the parts you'll look back at and say man what a hunting trip um but then yeah. you've got this beautiful ram to look at and know that the dollars spent on that the conservation money will help all the other young rams the ewes everyone survive and continue to thrive absolutely absolutely and um, you know, and then I, you know, it makes that this, this happened on the Lolo National Forest, which is, you know, again, that's that belongs to you, it belongs to me, it belongs to people in New York City, down in Florida, like that belongs to all of us. And you know, that idea that you know that anybody can kind of go do what I did. Now you can't maybe get a ram tag every year, but there's over the counter, you know, elk and deer permits up there, and. It's just so damn special that we all, you know, have those opportunities. And so I think, you know, when I have an opportunity like that, which I did last fall, it just 
you know, reiterates to me how damn important this stuff is, what we do every single day. And that, you know, this is, this is about us, including you, Jason. Like, all we're doing right now is we're doing our part to pass this on to the next generation so that they have something to fight for. Um, because it's going to be, you know, people are going to have to stay vigilant. And, you know, now it's our time to do our job. And we don't do that. And I say shame on us. Yeah, they have to be protected. We don't need more golf courses, nothing against golfers. But we got plenty of golf courses. We got plenty of mountainside condos. These lands need to be open so that even if you just get out of your car and stand there for a little bit and just look around, that's your land. That's your right to do that. And you're you're a steward of it for future generations, and we don't want to lose those. So, again, land, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure. I want everybody to go out to backcountryhunters.org and read, review, listen to the podcast, uh, hit the um, YouTube channel. I'll have all this linked in my show notes and join this organization. Even if it's you can't do the life membership, the one-year membership is worth its weight in gold and helps to, uh, to just re- reiterate your voice and solidify your voice for public land. So, Land, I thank you again for your time and what you're doing. And uh, I encourage you to keep protecting all of our best interests like you've been. Oh, well, thank you, Jason. And I, and I, I appreciate the opportunity to come on today. And then I also appreciate, you know, you being a part of our organization and, and really, you know, I think the, you know, like there's a quote, and I don't know who came up with it the first time, but I like to say it is that, you know, you either have a seat at the table or you're on the menu. And I think, you know, you being at the table, us being at the table, like, you know, we've got a fighting chance. And if we don't do that, then we're going to be on the menu. And I think we lose that every single time. Yeah, I agree. So, uh, you know, again, I just can't emphasize enough. Head out there. I'll have a links in the show notes. And, Lan, thank you. You have a wonderful day. And I appreciate everything you're doing. Oh, thank you, Jason. I appreciate you. And uh, anytime, man, anytime. Great. You take care. All right. You too, man. Thanks. Come early spring, it's getting green Fisher on the bed and Hear those turkeys gobble It's ringing in my head The winter rides bass boat Here comes another year Yeah, we command the outdoors around here Oh, we Command the outdoors Yeah, we Command the outdoors Come summertime, we're feeling fine Fishing on the lake Flipping jigs in Carolina rigs From early morning till real late Bonfires on the creek bank, kick back a couple beers. Yeah, we command the outdoors around here. Yeah, we command the outdoors. Yeah, we command the outdoors. 
Six news does until you know winter's on the way. Brushing blinds and deer stands. The fever starts to creep. Fill our freezers full of ducks, lots of tender deer. Yeah, we command the outdoors around here. Yeah, we command the outdoors. Yeah, we command the outdoors. So grab your guns, shells, boys. Put on your camouflage Cause we command the outdoors around here We command the outdoors